was speaking um, uh, yesterday evening about uh, feeling, and uh, this morning um, speaking about um, the uh, quality of, of spaciousness in the mind, and particularly using the uh, the inner sound, the nada sound, as a way of establishing that. Then I thought to um, follow along a, uh, a bit from both of those themes. Um, uh, as we uh, find ourselves more able to establish that uh, quality of inner spaciousness, uh, um, learning to attend to the present and um, using the the uh, the listening to the the inner sound the nada sound as a way of sustaining a more of a of a mental space and more of a, an open uh, say, in- inclusivity in our, our mental world then uh, this can help a, a lot to develop a, a quality of mindfulness in uh, the uh, emotional realm. The, uh, when we uh, are watching our minds, and uh, as we have been doing uh, very closely for the last number of days, where we know this is, I think, Wednesday now, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, so five or six days we've been together here uh, watching our, our minds in action. You'll probably have noticed how, uh, when there's a, an emotional charge to a particular uh, moment, some sense impression or a memory or an idea, uh, a mental image, if there's an emotional charge, then the the mind gets swept away uh, far more uh, far more easily. It gets drawn in and and carried away. So uh, uh, it's very helpful for us to uh, see learn how to apply the practice to cultivating a, uh, a mindfulness of emotion, understanding how that works and, and working with that. Now it's important to, to recognize we're not trying to stifle emotions or to try and uh, to steer our, our lives towards where uh, we are not feeling any emotion. It's not, uh, this is not what Buddhist practice is, is aimed towards. It's not about sort of neutralizing our our emotional nature, but uh, it's more to do with understanding it, seeing how it works, and learning how to to guide it skillfully. Uh, one of the the um, uh, the aspects of emotion is that whenever we are experiencing uh, any kind of emotion, whether it's positive or negative or neutral, whether it's a Inspiration or excitement or joy or grief, sadness, anger, fear, um, whatever it might be, uh, wholesome, unwholesome, um, bright or dark, um, there's always some kind of physical sensation. There's a physical corollary. There's a physical sensation that goes along with any kind of emotional state. So with uh, the feelings of... uh, of excitement or inspiration, or the feeling of grief, the feeling of of uh, sadness, you know, the feeling of of fear, of um, desire, anger, 
whatever it might be. Uh, and uh, there's no fixed pattern that uh, this works for for, for uh, all of us. Everyone has uh, their own particular imprint, like we have our own fingerprints or DNA uh, sequence. Uh, there's uh, unique ways in which uh, each of us will experience emotion as a, a, a physical feeling. But I would suggest that uh, if uh, that it's um, the same for all of us in some some respects that uh, whenever we experience any emotion there is a physical sensation that goes along with that and so that that physicality or the the, uh, the quality of vedana feeling that's associated with with an emotional state that can be a very helpful uh, inroad a very helpful way that we can steer the mind towards a quality of emotional balance and uh, help us to develop a um, uh, a, a quality of mindfulness uh, and wisdom, uh, a quality of integration in relationship to our emotional um, uh, experience. Uh, if you have a, if there's a particular uh, emotional habit that uh, that you have that you want to understand, like if your mind is if your mind is very taken up with grief, like the sadness of the of the the loss of a of a loved one, uh, or uh, if you are, uh, say, particularly prone to uh, irritation, that your mind is a is a kind of Olympic class complainer kind of a mind, that you're always just grumbling about life and complaining about things, and the mind moves towards negativity and criticism, or um, if your mind is say particularly prone towards anxiety and fear, um, then you can use the meditation deliberately to uh, explore that, those particular habits and uh, to to understand them more more completely. So, uh, just to give the example that I have uh, used a lot over the years was um, was the quality of fear, the experience of fear. But uh, I'd already been a uh, a monk for about uh, six or seven years, maybe eight years before I realized that my basic relationship to life was one of anxiety. So uh, uh, it was so strong, it was so pervasive, it was so kind of un unrelenting that I didn't even realize I did this. It was just like the force of gravity, you know, it was just there all the time. And uh, what I mean by this is that I, I it suddenly dawned on me one day that my basic, my basic relationship to life was, if it exists, worry about it. But uh, that's your fundamental relationship to life. Whatever it is, you know, if if there's something that you perceive, whether it's a a um, a human being, whether it's a a brick or a, or a tree or a cloud, if 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 you're aware of it, worry about it. Anybody had an experience like that? <laughs> so, uh, um, and this this was surprising because you know I've been a sort of professional meditator for a number of years. And watching watching my mind and and uh, feeling like this was uh, something that uh, I was say looking at closely and learning about how the, the mind works and it was uh, astonishing how uh, it was such a strong habit it's such a, a um, continuous presence that uh, I didn't even realize that I did this it was just so normal that well of course you know if something if something exists then you should worry I mean it's irresponsible not to be worried. <laughs> You're not doing your duty if you're not fretting. 
was the, the feeling that, that I, I had. So I realized that I needed to um, learn about this or to understand this, this anxious habit um, and how uh, uh, easily the mind got, got caught up in that. And it was really through listening to Lumpur Sumedho's advice and, and uh, following his guidance on this that uh, I, I, I um, learned how to use the, the, the physical sensations uh, of, a, uh, uh, of an emotion in this way. Because what, what the guidance that he gave that I found extremely helpful was to say when, uh, when the mind is uh, say caught up in an emotion, then the tendency is to get drawn into that. So if, you're, if your mind is uh, worrying about something, uh, the, 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 uh, the habit is for the attention to go onto the thing that you're worried about, like um, worried about what somebody thinks about you or worried whether you're going to be able to get through the, uh, the traffic on the M25 to get to the airport in time to, to catch your plane. Or um, you know, worried about whether you know, the... Um, uh, the, uh, the the meeting is going to go on yeah uh, for, for another two hours <laughs> and uh, or whatever it might be that the attention goes on to the the thing the object of worry about what that person's feeling or what the, the, the whether you're going to be able to catch the plane or whether the meeting's ever going to come to an end that the the attention goes to the object and we miss what's happening we, we miss the actual experience of, of fear we, we miss what is happening within us because uh, the, we miss what's happening on the subject side because the attention is going to the object over there. And so what, what, uh, what Lumpur Sumedho used to encourage is say, well, if you recognize you have a particular habit, then bring it up deliberately in the meditation. And so that uh, uh, what, uh, what one can do in this is uh, you... Uh, bring your mind to as a, a much of a quality of calm and stillness as possible, so focus the attention on the present and say, using the breath or listening to the, to the nada sound and allowing there to be as much inner spaciousness as possible, so just letting the mind relax, be open, attentive and aware. And then deliberately bring in something that causes an emotional reaction. So like with anxiety, um, the to to bring up something that you might uh, you you would know that would would, would trigger anxiety like um, uh, something like a simple uh, feeling like uh, I've got it wrong and there um, people will be upset with me something like that or we're going to be late <laughs> we're late we're late and so uh, or some particular remembering some particular incident. Uh, from the past where it aroused that feeling where there was anxiety where um, you did something that was criticized by others and you were um, being you were being blamed and you're worried about what was going to happen or um, or thinking of a person who causes that feeling of, of anxiety in you that uh, you never know what they're going to do next <laughs> or um, uh, whatever it might be, that they 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 are intimidate an intimidating person. So when you deliberately trigger that emotion, you don't want a whole big story, um, and uh, so that uh, you just need something to to sort of light the fire, as it were. So that uh, just taking a simple phrase like, like "I'm late" or "or they don't like me" 
or um, him. <laughs> you, do, you, you know all the details already. You don't have to spell it out over over again. Also, this is you know, particularly with um, negativity and conflicts. You know, uh, that uh, those who we had uh, say uh, a lot of um, uh, contention with people who we've been in arguments with or ex-spouses, particularly particularly potent in this. You just, and all you need to do is, you really just need to think him or her. Because you, you, you really know all the details. And just enough to, to trigger that, that uh, reaction. So uh, uh, what I found um, was, this, was, this quite, was quite easy to do. And so when you, you consciously trigger that emotional reaction, so you bring something that, that brings up the feeling of, of fear, then, uh, the, and this is the most difficult part, is where you, you deliberately take your attention away from all of the verbal creations that the, the mind starts to launch into. Yeah, and you know what he did next? I, I can't believe he did that. That's absolutely outrageous. No, 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 no. <laughs> so you draw your attention away from all of the the verbal creations, the conceptualizing, and consciously bring it into the body and say, okay, where does that feeling of, of fear sit? Where's that feeling of indignation or resentment? Where is that? How does that feel? What's its temperature? Does it? Uh, what's its its quality, its texture. Where do I feel that? So with fear, uh, I found that this was uh, uh, almost invariably a, a knot of tension down in, in the gut, in the solar plexus area. There'd be a tightness, uh, a, a tightening of the, of the stomach the, in the abdomen there. And so um, having then triggered that emotion, then you bring your attention just to to the, the, the sensation itself and... Uh, it takes a bit of effort to to not let the mind go into the storytelling, but uh, uh, with a, a bit of uh, of focus. And so this is why it's important to establish a quality of of uh, clear attention and steadiness of of attention at, at the beginning. Then you simply use that physical sensation as the meditation object, just noticing that, and then and then cultivating this quality of of acceptance, of a radical acceptance. For that feeling, and uh, what was really striking to me in this instance was because uh, uh, this uh, habit of, of fear and being driven by by fear and anxiety for, for my whole life, you're doing everything everything that you can to get away from that feeling, to, to get to a place where you're not feeling that, or something is ameliorating that, or helping it to disappear, and this, as if this was the most terrible, awful feeling that you, you had to get away from. Um, and you know, fear is is a uh, is Mother Nature's protection. You know, the uh, it's, fear is not a, a disease. It's a uh, it's how uh, beings protect themselves. You know, the living creatures, the the ones who weren't afraid got eaten. <laughs> well, the ones who weren't afraid fell off the cliff. You know, the ones who weren't afraid got hit by the you know, by the oncoming traffic. So, <laughs> fear is useful. You know. So I remember. Years ago, I was on a retreat in the forest at, at Chithurst, and I was sitting on this five-bar gate watching the, the sun uh, uh, coming up early in the morning, and there were these deer grazing out in the field and, and uh, just nibbling the, the, the young corn. And uh, then uh, I, I sneezed or coughed or something, made this noise, and, and the deer kind of, 
perked their heads up and then sort of saw me on the gate and then belted off across the field. And I thought, oh, poor things, their lives so dominated by by uh, fear and, and terror. You know, just I just you know this innocent monk sneezes and then you know they they're racing away. You know, poor things. And then this thought, this thought followed along, like. <laughs> That's why they. That's how they stay alive. That's why ear, that deer have big ears and big eyes, so they can they can tell when there's any danger around. So that their fear is what helps them to stay alive. But it becomes a problematic when it sort of overspills its boundaries, and it's not just to help keep us from being eaten by saber-toothed tigers or you know, uh, mountain lions and such like, or, or hunters shot by hunters. But it's where it's a pervasive and continual. Um, uh, and uh, stressful habit. So what uh, what I noticed that when when I, I brought attention to the the physical sensation of fear, even though I spent so much time and effort and energy getting away from that, when you really bring attention to what it's like, the feeling of fear as a sensation, as a, a presence without any kind of commentary about it, there's this this. Uh, somewhat disappointing sense of, oh, it's not that bad at all, really. <laughs> Why do I spend so much time and effort and energy trying to get away from this? This isn't even as bad as a headache or a, a stone in the shoe. You know, it's, it's not as bad as a, as a toothache or, or um, yeah, let alone a, you know, a, a broken bone or anything like that. It's really not that, that terrible. It's not that, not that unbearable at all. It's, it's not pleasant and you're not pretending that it's it's delightful or sweet, but it's really not that bad. Um, but it's because of the you know the conditioning and the reactive process that we we have that sensation of oh, and then we want to get to a place where we won't feel that. We get back from the edge of the cliff, or we get away from where the 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 danger is. We turn the light on, and then oh, okay, we can see fine, we're good. No ghosts. Yes. <laughs> we're all right. So then with this particular practice, then what you do is to, having triggered it, then consciously just stay with that sensation for a few minutes, um, as fully and attentively just uh, developing this, this attitude of acceptance and being uh, open to it, just letting, us, letting that be fully known and felt just as a sensation, again with as little commentary or judgment as possible. And then after a few minutes, say five minutes, ten minutes or so, then consciously start to, to let it go and to, to let the body relax and uh, to uh, relinquish, um, to, to let that feeling dissolve and fade away. And then it's important in this to, and this was something that, that uh, Lumpur used to stress, is that, that you, you don't just sort of hurry to get away from it or try to wipe it out, but you just let it fade on its own. And sometimes with a particularly strong emotion, like if you have some sort of long-standing resentment or a painful grief or some, some um, uh, intense regret, um, that uh, it can take five seconds to, to trigger the, the emotion and then 45 minutes to let go of it. <laughs> but if it takes that long, then it takes that long. And it's important just to, to let it um, fade uh, and to, to end uh, according to its own pace and so you just allow it to cease rather than trying to force it to end or to suppress it 
But then, uh, when it's uh, uh, finally sort of run its course and has faded away, then the last piece of, the, of this uh, this particular practice is then to stay with that quality of spaciousness and clarity. Again, going back to listening to the the nada sound and letting there be just an attention to the the open inner space of the mind. So in this process, you've watched the the uh, you've, tr- you've you've watched an emotion come into being. It's been born. It's it's done its thing. It's come to its sort of full peak and uh, then it's uh, gone through its whole cycle and faded away and gone back to nothing again. You've watched the whole life cycle of, of birth, flourishing, fading and dissolving. you watched it um, through, the, through the, the entire process. You've seen it come out of nothing, go back to nothing. So and the, uh, having seen that and, and during the course of its presence, then there has been a quality of acceptance of it, that you've, you've accepted in a wholehearted and complete way the, the, at, least, at least the physical sensation that comes from the emotion. And the, the interesting and mysterious thing is, is that to, um, because we've accepted and had a, 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 um, say a, an open and a unbiased attitude towards the, the, the physical sensation, then to some degree we've also accepted where the emotion has come from. There's a, the heart comes into accord with that um, that habit of fearing or that uh, the the source of that conflict or that source of that grief, and to some degree there's an acceptance uh, and uh, a coming into harmony with with uh, the origin, the source of that. And so it's like with drinking water from a stream. When you when you drink water from a stream, when you take water from a stream, you've also drunk from the source of the stream. You've you've uh, tasted where it's come from. So this has a very uh, powerful effect on on uh, helping us to work with emotions, and then you 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 can do this in the in the sort of quiet and stillness of a retreat time or or a, a formal uh, period of, of meditation practice. But if you uh, if you develop this and you you learn to to do this um, uh, in a sort of a quiet and controlled situation, then you begin to be able to do it more and more, sort of on on the run, as, as it were, and so. Uh, for myself, just going back to this experience or this habit of, of anxiety and fear that I had, so that then what I would do is that I would then, once I got the hang of it and how to, to work with this and sort of going to the, taking the attention off the object and then going to the physical sensation, then during the course of the day I would make it my, my practice, effort. Whenever anxiety ro- arose about anything, about whether it was about... Um, yeah, who these people are that are coming into the sala, or um, what should uh, what should I say to Ajahn Sumedho uh, about this particular issue? Or you know, are we are we are we going to get get the, that plane <laughs> with the uh, traffic on the M25, or is this um, is this meeting ever going to come to an end? <laughs> that uh, I would make the intent. Okay, whenever anxiety arises. Bring the attention into the the solar plexus and, and make that your focus of attention, and then uh, uh, be aware of that, know that, let yourself be conscious of it, and then after a moment, let yourself relax. And then, what's a, when when you start to develop this sort of on the uh, on the on the run, as it were, and you bring it into real life situations that are that are causing it, you're not sort of just conjuring it up out of your own memory or imagination, but you're you're sort of deal, dealing with it in real life situations. Then, 
what happens is that there's a very interesting, curious alchemy because, um, so again, using the example of fear, what happens then if you you then bring your attention to that that feeling in the body, you let the body relax, and then you ask yourself after the body's relaxed and you've let go of that that uh, tension, then you ask yourself, now what was it that I was I was worried about? And almost invariably, the mind would take a couple of seconds to say, it was, oh, oh yeah, right, that bloke, yeah, yeah, he doesn't look, he doesn't look right, yeah, I'm not sure where he's at, <laughs> but for a couple of moments, a couple of seconds, you had, uh, you'd sort of unplugged the anxiety program. There, there was no thing to be worried about, and so what really dawns on you is, is oh. If I don't, if I don't make it a problem, it's not a problem. <laughs> if I don't create it as a problem, I don't create it as a thing to be worried about. There isn't actually anything to be worried about. You follow? So that uh, we, the, the mind makes it a problem or something that we're annoyed about. That uh, that the mind uh, it has to create that. It shouldn't be this way. That's outrageous. How can she do that? That's totally wrong. That we have to construct that, and if we don't construct that, it's not there. Or something that we desire. That uh, if if the emotion is one of a desire or greed, that uh, once you've uh, you know, you've worked with it in that way, you let go of that that desire, and then you then you ask yourself, what was it that I was wanting so badly? And then even if it's just for half a second, just watching how the mind has to reconstruct that desire thing. It was. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, I got, I got to have it. I got, but for half a second, you didn't got to have it. For half a second, you were fine without it because you couldn't. Even, you couldn't even remember what it was that you were missing. Now, some of you might think this is just a pointless mind game, <laughs> but uh, uh, I can uh, vouch for my for my own experience. This has a very radical way of, of say unplugging those habits. I say taking away the causes. For emotional reactivity and the and the bondage of the heart to uh, loves and hates and uh, fears and anxieties, reactions, griefs and regrets, and uh, excitements, um, and so that uh, that the um, the confusion or the identification with with emotions uh, is is really uh, is radically changed. Is really um, Altered in a in a, uh, a fundamental way, and so uh, as I said, my the the habit that I had with this was was extremely strong. So that for about two or three years, this was like the the main thing I was doing with with my practice, uh, just making this uh, the the main effort. So every day uh, at the beginning of during the morning sitting every day, I would set the intention. Okay, during today, whenever anxiety fear of any kind arises about anything whatsoever, then I'll bring my attention to that and be conscious of it and, and uh, yeah, let it be fully known and let go of it so that I would prime myself for that uh, uh, every day. But then after working with it like that for two or three years, then by the end of that time, then, then it had uh, changed quite radically so that it just, in a way, had just been... Um, Dissolved, so it just stopped being a, a, an issue, and uh, it was quite a, a sort of remarkable change in the in my experience of the world. <laughs> so 
the, you know, what the life was like when you didn't have to worry about everything all of the time. It felt quite revolutionary at first thing. Sometimes you think, no, this, this can't be right. I'm, I'm not doing my job here. <laughs> the world can't, can't carry on unless I'm worrying about it. But then you realize, no, it's absolutely fine. So, yeah, as I said, each one of us has our own particular emotional flavors, and some of you might be thinking, I haven't got any problems with emotions. You know, I'm fine. And if that's true, well, uh, well, sadhu. <laughs> I feel much mudita for you. But uh, so what we're able to, to do then in, in this way is to, to understand how there's a, um, say, that the problems don't come from having emotions. The, you know, the problems or problematic nature of uh, the emotional world is where there's uh, a, an entanglement. The, the heart is caught up and, and identified. With, with loving, with hating, with fearing, desiring, uh, with grieving and regretting and, and hoping. And that it's, it's the identification and entanglement with it that causes the problems. And when that, that, that identification and entanglement, uh, entanglement is, is not there, then we, we feel that the flow of emotion, uh, of happiness, unhappiness, liking, disliking, as I was saying last night, it can flow through us and we can know it. Um, and uh, we, it can pa- all pass through without confusion, and then, and then the emotions that are wholesome and beautiful, like kindness and compassion and and uh, well wishing, then we act on those and empower those and strengthen those. And then the emotions like uh, like uh, resentment, anger, jealousy, fear, um, then we we are able to recognize those as being you know, harmful or destructive, and they they flow through, but we we don't act on them. Or like like Lumpo Cha said to, you know, about his his uh, anger tendencies. Yes, I have lots of anger, but I don't use it. <laughs> so another aspect of uh, going away from the, the subject of, of emotions, uh, another aspect of, of developing this uh, quality of internal spaciousness is it also gives us a bit more of a perspective on conceptual thought. And so that this is um, one of the things that came up in, in the um, one of the, the group interviews yesterday about how to to develop mindfulness of, of thinking because it's uh, it seems to be extremely hard to be able to watch thoughts coming into being and, and uh, appearing in, in the mind. And so a practice, again, that Lumpur Sumedha would teach um, is, is sim- in a similar vein is that of, of, of using deliberate thought. To be able to learn how to watch thought, you, you deliberately think something. And so, uh, again, this might seem like a pointless mind game. <laughs> but, uh, well, maybe it is. But uh, it, it can also be, uh, be very handy. So he would, he would uh, suggest taking a, a simple, a completely bland thought, like, today is Wednesday. Very emotionally uncharged. <laughs> uh, today is Wednesday. Or um, um, uh, something of that nature. So it's a, it's a very um, non-contentious, you know, ordinary statement. And so bringing the mind to a quality of quietness, and spaciousness, uh, stillness, then just deliberately thinking that thought. So you're watching the thought begin. So you're noticing the space before it, and then you think, today is Wednesday. So you notice the space before, and then 
planting the thought there and then the space after. So, uh, and doing this as, as a little exercise, like as if you're learning a, a, a musical instrument, you you have your uh, your your exercises, you know, doing your your scales, <laughs> just doing the scales over and over again, so that you you learn how that you teach your fingers how to make those particular notes. So you can use a simple uh, exercise like this, just to uh, train yourself how to watch a conceptual thought, and then um, uh, you know taking something that's that's uh, for, uh, to begin with, it's totally bland, like today is Wednesday. Um, uh, and then uh, then once you get the hang of doing it with that, and you can see the beginning, the middle, and the end of a thought, then you can start to with something a bit more complicated, uh, something that's a bit more involved. Um, or also just noticing the spaces between the words. You know, today, space, is, space, Wednesday, space. So that even as a thought is passing through, you're able to notice the space of the mind you know, that is there between the between the words. And so this is a, a whole um, um, kind of area of, of practice that is is uh, very helpful because our attention gets caught by the objects. The mind goes into the 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 content of a thought, the content of a concept, of a, a memory, or a, a, a set of ideas. We get swept up in it, but we don't see that. Oh, this is a thought, like you know, like with emotions. We don't see. Oh, this is an emotion. This is a feeling because we're swept up into the content. So even more uh, compelling can be conceptual thoughts, like trying to figure things out or plan things or remembering things. And so whoosh, we, the uh, the mind gets, gets swept up so easily in the content. But just to be able to watch a thought as a thought uh, is tremendously helpful. So that you're, as I've been saying, with, with the development of vipassana, so much of of the capacity to, to watch the mind is built around letting go of the content and being able to simply watch the process. So that this this kind of an exercise of learning how to to uh, think deliberately, uh, to be able to uh, watch a thought or make a thought come into being, to, to focus on it as it's present, and then to let it finish. That uh, by taking a simple exercise like that and learning how to do it with a, a bland and neutral thought, then as the mind conjures up its own thoughts or, or memories or, or opinions, then again, rather than just buying into it and getting caught up with it and, and the mind launching into a fantasy or a plan or a memory or an opinion, the, there can be that clear wisdom that knows, oh, this is an opinion. <laughs> this is a memory. Yeah. This is a... This is a story my mind likes to tell. That's all. You don't have to push it away. You don't have to to um, to grasp hold of it. You can know. Oh, this is just a you know, a, a pattern uh, taking shape in the mind. And also, he uh, Lumpur would recommend just using just the, our our sensory experience of of space, like in a room like this, um, and listening to a dhamma talk. Now, the the attention. I imagine goes more to the words rather than the silences between the words, right? Because uh, even though the, um, you might have heard it all before, the words are more interesting than the silences. <laughs> like the people in this room are more interesting than the space between people. So by the... <laughs> so, 
See, Victor's got his earplugs in. So. <laughs> I'm not sure if you're hearing what I'm saying or you're hearing the silence. <laughs> but uh, the um, the the spaces between people are less interesting than the people. You know, people have names, people have histories, they have genders, they have kind of ages, they have different kind of different colored clothing. They have. Uh, we have different qualities from each other. So interest arises. The, the, the attention is caught by the, uh, uh, those particularities. But you know, the space between people is all pretty much the same. Space is not interesting. But uh, what, what, uh, what we are um, then missing is if we, uh, if we don't notice space is that we are, um, say, Always absorbing our attention into you know one condition after another. We are we're not we're not able to say keep a perspective on life because the mind goes into into judgment and comparing and criticism, and liking and disliking. So a simple practice of noticing space and uh, again it, it it it's not very complicated or, or demanding, but just to to take the trouble when you when we come into a room like this to to take a moment to notice the space around people, the spaces between people. When you're hearing a, a talk or something being said, just to notice the, the silences between the words. And that uh, it doesn't take much, it doesn't take a, a lot of attention, but when we, uh, we bring our, our uh, awareness, or we bring that into awareness of the, what the, the, uh, the space in the room is like, we realize, oh, that's actually more space than people here. <laughs> and space is, is not interesting, but it's very peaceful. Uh, it's uh, very calming yeah, and uh, very, uh, very delightful uh, in its own way. And so that just as with uh, uh, the internal uh, relationship to emotion and to conceptual thought, we're able to keep those in perspective because of noticing the space around them. So we can support that by uh, developing this kind of a practice of noticing space in the in the world around us, uh, in the, the things, the places where we go, and the things that we do. You might even on the London Underground, you you might think, "Oh, it's so noisy, so crowded," but just to to take a moment to notice the space in the tube. I mean, it's called it the tube. I mean, it's referring to the space. <laughs> So that oh look, they you know, look, don't just get caught up with the the noise and the smell and the the uh, the the movement, but oh look, there's space here too, and that uh, and how when we notice the space around things, the space within things, there's a a, a balancing or a, a leveling quality that that is there, uh, rather than the mind getting caught into judgment of like and dislike and and having a you know a sort of reactive patterns around it. When we we notice the the space that's uh, around things, the space that's within things, then there's a a um, uh, an equanimity or a, an, uh, a quality of of serenity there that uh, we are not so drawn in by the details of what's occupying that space or, or coloring that space, but uh, it, it's uh, it's all held more within a a, a larger picture.
And when we start to develop this kind of contemplation, like the space in the room and space in the mind, and uh, we begin to look at these things in this way, and also how um, our uh, our experience works. So we begin to to recognize, even though it's in a way it's it's kind of obvious that the just as a thought is uh, is known within the mind, or an emotion is known within the mind. So too, what we see, hear, smell, taste, and touch is also known within the mind. So, right now, this room, uh, the the room that we're experiencing, is known within our mind. Right? You might we might say, yeah, we're we're all in this room. We're all sitting in the the meditation hall, the retreat center. But this room is in your mind. Everything you've ever known throughout your entire life has been known through the agency of your mind. Right? There's no way that any of us know anything else. Everything that's ever been experienced, ever since we were tiny babies, has been known through the experience of our minds. So we've only ever experienced our minds' representation of the world. And so we say, by the conventions of speech, in here and out there, in my mind, you know, in here or in here, and the world out there, but actually, the world, uh, as we experience it, is sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, uh, being woven together into a, a hopefully coherent form, so that the, the world is in our minds. So, now, the Buddha Dhamma is not uh, a philosophy of what they call solipsism, where like just saying that our mind, you know, uh, that outside of our minds, there, you know, there is no world, it's all just kind of an invention. Uh, some philosophers have, have sort of believed in that, and uh, sort of taken that to be to be true. That um, that uh, you know, if you if you stop looking, the world disappears. <laughs> that the world is completely invented by by our mind, and uh, and so that can uh, and th- there are those people who believe that, uh, or, or think that still think that that's true. And this is not what uh, is there in in Buddhism. Yeah, that uh, I. Uh, I think it was Bishop Barclay um, who was who talked about this a lot. If I remember the uh, um, uh, English philosophy, or well, he's Irish actually, <laughs> that uh, that he uh, he talked about the um, the oak tree in the quadrangle of his uh, college garden, uh, and that uh, did that oak tree really ex- still continue to exist if you weren't looking at it? And um, it was just not to be too much of a distraction about this, but it was one of his uh, proofs of the the existence of God was that the fact that the oak tree kept existing while you didn't, well, while you weren't looking at it, meant that somebody must be looking at it, and if somebody was looking at it, that somebody was probably God. So, with an even greater digression, there was a a uh, a couple of limericks that were written about this. That come to mind, which was um, by some bored philosophy student, I'm sure, <laughs> a few decades ago, said there. There was a young man who said, "God, must think it exceedingly odd to find that this tree continues to be when there's no one about in the quad." And the response was, "Dear sir, your astonishment's odd. I am always about in the quad." And that's why this tree will continue to be signed, yours faithfully, God. 
So Buddhists don't think like that. So we're not. Uh, but so we're not saying that the the world is entirely fabricated by your mind, and that other beings don't really exist, um, and it's all just a, a dream that you're in the middle of. But rather that your version of the world is uh, constructed and conditioned by uh, the, uh, your own conditioning. That the, the world that I experience is is built up or, uh, and is uh, is formed, is framed by the conditioning of a lifetime. The fact that I speak English, that I have the mind thinks in in this particular language, or I have the the, the uh, life experiences or background of, of a human being. That you know, if I was a spider, this room would be extreme, extremely different. You know, the humans would be really boring, but the things that a spider can eat would be really interesting. <laughs> So that uh, the the world that we experience is uh, fabricated, is formed by the patterns of consciousness within our minds. So that uh, when we consider it in this way, we see that you know, the world is in our mind, and that uh, when when we uh, are able to experience things in that way, then that uh, it changes our, our relationship to the world. See, the world is in your mind. That there isn't really an out there. <laughs> it's all in here. It's all uh, known here. Uh, it's all, say, uh, patterns of, of uh, uh, mental uh, event taking place, forming here within our awareness. So that then, that uh, uh, when we are able to sort of sh- shift the perception in that way, we're able to to take the 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 flow of our thoughts or the flow of events out in the world and to recognize it all happens here there's a there's a um, a quality of of integration in that there's a a a sense of uh, of wholeness that comes with opening the mind in that way and so it's, it can be particularly useful so to when you're doing walking meditation and that it's very much this feeling of you know I am out there walking up and down as you know the world is around me you know you have the sky and trees and birds and grass and and such like and uh, all of the clues are saying no that's the world you know there's the sky and look you know even nighttime you can see up to the stars and the planets and such like far away um, but to be recollecting that oh yeah the world is in my mind the world is the, it all happens here. It's uh, there. There is no there. There. It's all here. It's all uh, known within the same sphere of consciousness, the same sphere of awareness. Then and then, when we we shift the perception in that way, just notice how that affects us. Again, you might feel oh, this is just another pointless little mind game. <laughs> but uh, the the point of these exercises is how that changes us when we we are able to recognize. Uh, yes, that's uh, yeah. That that is actually the fact that if I if I close my eyes, the visual world vanishes. And I open my eyes, it, it reappears again. Everyone comes into being. That uh, that is actually the fact that my experience of the world is fabricated by my senses, and and uh, that is the world that that I know. That there's that this is all happening here. It's within this mind. It's known. Here, and so that then, that uh, being able to see that that uh, 
what we experience is a continuous flowing process uh, in a single integrated process then it makes it also easier to uh, say abide in that quality of, of knowing or an awareness that is uh, say receiving that flow knowing that flow of, of perception and experience so that it's a uh, um, along with say attending to the different patterns of, of perception of thought and feeling um, there is a, a quality of um, along with that that movement and flow and change there's also a, a, a tremendous quality of of stillness it's like the space of this room contains all of the the, the people that come and go and change within it the space contains there's a, a, the the movement uh, it's a it's that which is a, a framework for the movement so similarly uh, within our minds that uh, there is the quality of awareness which is the the framework or the that which contains and, and accommodates all of the movement now uh, at the at the end of Ajahn Chah's uh, teaching uh, career uh, like many uh, many teachers he would have a particular themes that he'd like to explore or, or play upon for um, uh, a year or two at, at a time and uh, right at the the end of his um, his time of, of being able to teach uh, before he had a stroke and, and couldn't speak anymore so from about 1979-80-81 then a particular theme that he used to use was that when people uh, would come to visit him uh, one of the, the questions he'd ask would be, um, have you ever seen still water? You ever seen still water? And the people would say, well, yes. You know, look here in this glass. <laughs> this water is still, it's not moving. So have you ever seen flowing water? I'd say, well, yeah, yeah, I've seen flowing water. And then he'd say, did you ever see still flowing water? Water that's both flowing and still. And then and people would think, what? I must have misheard that. What, what's he talking about? Still flowing water. Nam Lai Ning. Nam Lai Ning. And, there, and so he, he would say, you ever seen that? You ever, ever come across that? And they say, I'm sorry, Lumpo, I never, never came across that. And he'd say, well, the mind is like still flowing water. It flows insofar as there's perceptions and thoughts and moods uh, the sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thinking, uh, emotion comes and goes and changes. There is a, a continuous flow, but there's also stillness. That because that which is aware of uh, all of the mental activity, of perception, of thought, of feeling, that is not going anywhere. That's outside of the world of space and and time. That is perfectly still. It's not something that is subject to 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 movement or or change. It is the uh, it is the the ever-present quality of, of knowing, the kuru, the, the one who knows, that which is aware. So the, your mind is like still flowing water. There's stillness and there's movement, and the, the two per, interpenetrate and, and permeate each other completely and without without conflict. So uh, this is a, a helpful image to, to bear in mind and uh, to be able to, to see that... Uh, uh, even when there's movement, like the body moving up and down on the walking meditation path, or there's uh, you know movement, say of my hands, <laughs> uh, going back and forth, 
that even though there might be movement, that that which knows the movement isn't going anywhere. That which knows the movement is is uh, outside of the, the realm of, of time and space. It's, it's ever-present. It's not caught up in that. So that uh, just as you're doing the walking meditation, there, there can be the perception of the body moving. There's the, the body walking up and down. But that which knows the body is always here. Right? But just as for your entire life, everything that you've ever known, ever experienced, has happened through your mind, it's only ever happened here, right? Wherever you were for your entire life, it was always here. Right? Not in the shrine of Amravati, obviously. <laughs> but there was always a here-ness. Wherever you were, it was here. Even when you were, again, you were a little baby and you couldn't think the word here, or whatever your, your earliest language was. But that's what life was experienced here. Um, and so that that um, that quality uh, is uh, say the yeah, say the when we are um, bringing attention to that this is what Ajahn Chah is referring to is this quality of, of stillness in the still flowing water that life is always happening here the body even the body moving up and down even as the body is walking. <laughs> That that which is knowing the walking isn't going anywhere, right? You follow? So that uh, there's a perception of of the body moving, but that which is knowing the movement isn't moving. That's it's always it's ever present. It's always here. It's free from bondage to the realm of of time and space. It's it's unlocated. Now we um, have been talking a lot about uh, anicca, dukkha, anatta, uh, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. And in, in using the the um, the these reflections to help loosen the habits of, of attachment and identification, and and uh, those kind of uh, attachments can be quite subtle and, and pervasive and kind of strong, particularly around the feeling of self and. Uh, I've been emphasizing particularly this, uh, seeing the, the self-creating habits of mind and how to loosen those, let those go, and to free the heart from, from self-view. But those, kind, those bonds, and the, those habits of grasping can be very subtle and pervasive and strong. And uh, one of the, the, the elements of it is that uh, even when there can be a, a clear seeing of, of those self-creating habits and we're letting go of them, there can still be... Um, a strong bondage going on. I was mentioning today, chatting with uh, with um, someone, how um, uh, many years ago I was on a winter retreat in uh, a Bayagiri monastery in, in California, and uh, it was like three or four weeks into the retreat, and my mind was very quiet, and uh, the um, uh, practice was was uh, very uh, steady and, and strong, and that was. Uh, very yeah, quiet and, and uh, um, supportive retreat environment, and so uh, during the the course of the the days, uh, it was uh, it was getting very very easy to see the the quality of of anatta that you know, all the perceptions and, and thoughts, and memories, the body and, and feelings and so forth. 
it was really clear this isn't me, it's not self, it's not me, it's not mine, it's not what who and what I am. Just there was there was a kind of obviousness and naturalness to that. And uh and then suddenly um but then what I was feeling that there was a kind even though that there was a really clear sense of, of not self, that this is not me, not mine, there was a, a strange kind of crampedness or a, a so a, a quality of containment or limitation. Now and so there was this this was curious and well what's this what's this about? There's this even though I can, there's this clear seeing that things are uh, anicca dukkha anatta, that then they're not self, they're you know, empty of substance. What's the, there's this strange of um, uh, limitation here, or this strange kind of tension in the system, and it suddenly dawned on me. So it became clear. Oh, uh, it's all happening here. There's this. The mind is creating this feeling of locatedness. That is everything is is happening in my mind and it's here in this this spot in this place and uh the the risk of sort of getting too abstruse um well i feel this is a helpful thing to to look at uh i had, was uh, uh it was clear to, to me how up until that point i'd never actually seen that kind of an attachment to the feeling of of place or the feeling of of location that that the mind creates a that sense of here in this spot, this kind of geographical center, this is where things are felt. This is this is where I'm experiencing things. And um, so I I don't know if uh, if any of you have uh, have uh, intuited this or felt this, but uh, it was very striking to me at that time. And so I, I suddenly I realized there was this there's this kind of attachment to the to a, a sense of the awareness was some. Uh, it was happening in in this place, in this in this spot, in this location, and so I began to to look at just at that very feeling of locatedness, and uh, the the sense of things happening here, and and in a, using a very very simple and straightforward reflection, just of just bringing to mind the word here, <laughs> or it's all happening here, and that. Uh, just by bringing that the attention to that, then how absurd <laughs> the the word here uh, began to feel, and there was a, a a whole extra layer of of letting go was able to to happen. And uh, shortly after that, I, I came across a, a sentence in uh, um, a teaching a dhamma talk of Ajahn Mahabur's where he he talked about this this insight in a um, that had a very radical. Uh, role to play in, in his own practice, and he's saying it was just after the time that uh, his teacher, uh, Venerable Ajahn Man, had passed away, and he was d- doing walking meditation. Um, Ajahn Mahabur was doing walking meditation, and suddenly this thought appeared in his mind, which said, "If there is a, a point or a center to the knower anywhere, then that is the uh, the essence." Of birth in some level of being. If there is a point or the cent or a center to the knower, then that is the essence of birth. That's the source the, of of birth in some uh, some level of being. That's where the the mind gets caught. That's in a way avijja <laughs> happens right there. And that was a really I, I maybe I had read that before, but it hadn't really struck me until I I had this sort of reflection about uh, the unlocated quality of. Of Dhamma, and 
And I said, that's it. There's a, my mind has been creating this point or the center of knowing. And it's not until that that is actually recognized as a quality of grasping that uh, that uh, the heart can, can really be freed to any kind of radical extent. So that along with... Uh, uh, things being uh, unsatisfac- impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self, then I find it's also helpful to to uh, recollect that essentially, you know, Dhamma is unlocated. That the world of three-dimensional space only applies to the world of form, physical form. That the mind, the world of mind, it, uh, location, location does not apply. Place does not apply in terms of mind. Interesting thought. <laughs> Three-dimensional space only refers to, only has a relationship to the physical world. Mind does not have any fundamental relationship to three-dimensional space. Because mind has no substance. Has, there is no physical form. So therefore, 3D space, which is uh, relates to physical form, essentially has no uh, relationship to the mind. So where is your mind? <laughs> and then in this, the, the, so I found this a really helpful reflection. So I, that, the rest of that retreat, that winter retreat, I was just using these kind of um, ways to explore it, just to use the word where. <laughs> or where is my mind? Where is the mind? And by illuminating that, um, the presumptions that are made about, well, it's here or, or here. <laughs> uh, here. To say, well, any kind of hereness is not it. <laughs> so again, at the risk of, uh, of think this being too abstruse or, or not helpful, I feel it's uh, if we're using this opportunity to look at all the different areas uh, of our habits of attachment and identification, this is also good to look at as an area to explore and uh, just to see that uh, even at, at this very, very subtle level, even when there's no sense of self, that it can be that no sense of self is being experienced here. <laughs> and that, that here-ness is also to be let go of. That, uh, Dhamma, is unlo- Dhamma is absolutely real, but is completely unlocated. So you can't say that the, the Dhamma is, is, uh, is anywhere. Uh, or we say, well, it's everywhere! <laughs> But just to, to say, look at that whole dimension and to recognize awareness does not apply. And to just let that have its effect on the, on the jitta. So I offer these thoughts for consideration this evening.